This summer at Kenilworth Union, we're preaching this sermon series called To Bless the Space Between Us, which is based on a book by John O'Donohue. He's written this book with many, many blessings and prayers, including the one we opened the worship service uh, this morning with. And today we're talking about thresholds. To uh, preach this sermon series, we're using the Revised Common Lectionaries texts from the Gospel of Luke today from chapter 10. After this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them on ahead of him in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. Jesus said, go on your way. Behold, I'm sending you out like lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no purse, no bag, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, say, peace to this house And if anyone is there who shares in peace, your peace will rest on that person. But if not, your peace will return to you. But when you enter a town and they don't welcome you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to my feet, we will shake off in protest against you. Yet know this, the kingdom of God is at hand The seventy returned, saying, Lord, in your name even the demons submit to us. And Jesus said to them, I watched Satan fall in a flash of lightning from heaven. See, I have given you authority to tread on snakes and scorpions and over all power of the enemy, and nothing will hurt you. Pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So in this morning's text, Jesus realizes that he's not going to be able to accomplish the large mission of sharing the good news of God's kingdom alone. And so he deputizes a small army of fellow evangelists and sends them out ahead of him in pairs, two by two. And so the first thing we need to notice about this passage is that when it comes to preaching the good news of the kingdom, we're not alone. There are 70 of us in this company, and we go out two by two. Now surely this text is the inspiration for the Mormons with their white shirts and their skinny black ties, and also for the Jehovah's Witnesses with their Watchtower magazines as they knock on many unfamiliar doors and cross many unfamiliar thresholds. We don't tackle this task alone. That's the whole purpose of the Christian church. God puts us in companies of at least 70 so that we can share the good news of God with those who are like-minded to us. So that's the first thing. We don't do this alone. Secondly, Jesus says, every house you come to, say, peace be to this house. That's where we start and that's where we end, with peace and grace and respect, not with disdain and suspicion and defensiveness. Jesus even says, If the person accepts your peace, you give her or him your peace. If they don't want it, your peace comes back to you. The peace you bring to a house, he seems to think of as kind of a commodity. It's like cash. If they want it, you have less of it. If they don't want it, it comes back to you and you're none the poorer. So Jesus says, don't do it alone. Speak peace. And thirdly, if a town rejects your peace... Just shake the dust off your feet in protest. 
Because you're responsible for the message, but not for the response. In other words, don't waste your time. Go somewhere else. Try again. Just shake it off. In last week's Christian Century, Liv Larson Andrews asked, I bet you didn't know that Taylor Swift got her inspiration from the Bible. Player's going to play, 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 play. Hater's going to hate, 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 hate. I'm just going to shake, 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 shake it off. That is one of the funnest and wisest songs of the last decade. Do your best, no one to quit. So, don't do it alone, speak peace, shake it off. So, what happens when the Revised Common Lectionary from the Gospel of Luke meets the 4th of July? How is this God's Word for us in this specific place, on this specific day, maybe in some particular eccentric way? Well, how about this? Don't you think it's the fact that Americans no longer know how to talk to each other? Just see the headline under the masthead? On the Times this morning, it reads, A nation divides along a red-blue axis. Two Americas, one liberal, one conservative, are moving in opposite directions. That's the headline under the masthead in this morning's Times, 4th of July weekend. We don't know how to talk to each other. You know, in, an, in our defense, it's not all our fault. We just can't catch a break. For the last two years, it's just been one damn thing after another. A pandemic and masks and shutdowns and the murder of George Floyd and the presidential election and the election deniers and the January 6th insurrection and guns and abortion. In Friday's Times, David Brooks writes, We live in an age of menace. Menace, he says a strong way of putting the point but I don't think he's wrong about that so how do we speak peace to each other speak peace to each other in a time of menace I've been doing this since 1985 a long time it's never been harder for American preachers like me to hold our flocks together you know for two years parishioners used the excuse of the virus to stay away from church and now they find other excuses to stay away. Some people stay away because the preacher preaches about politics too much. And others stay away because he doesn't talk about the issues enough. A couple of American pastors have lost their jobs because they prayed for immigrants. Good Lord, the entire Hebrew Bible is about immigrants. Strangers in a strange land. So it's really tough for American preachers these days. A couple of years ago, around the time of the presidential election, a few of these preachers who were having trouble keeping their flocks together decided to do something about it. So they started forming groups in their churches. And so they would take 10, 12, 14, 20 of their parishioners and put them in a room for discussion. There would be red Christians in there and blue Christians in there. And the whole purpose of the meeting would be to explain why they think like they think and believe like they believe and vote like they vote. These preachers called this project the Colossians Forum. 
the Colossians Forum, after Paul's letter to the Colossians, where chapter 1, verse 17 reads, And Jesus Christ himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Hold together. A couple of years ago when these things were beginning, a friend of mine called me and invited me to start a Colossians Forum here in my own church. And you know, he must have gotten me on a bad day or at a bad moment or something because I said instantly, even without thinking about it, I said, Bruce, can I just have a root canal instead? This just sounds like the fifth circle of hell. So I hope I didn't hurt his feelings. What do you think? That's why there's no Colossians Forum at Kenilworth Union Church. Janet Adamy wrote a wonderful article in the Wall Street Journal about a Colossians Forum at a Dutch Reformed congregation in Grand Rapids. That's the denomination and the town where I was raised. And incidentally, Janet Adamy graduated from the University of Michigan and now teaches journalism at the Medill School of Northwestern. And so she follows these 14 Christians at a church in western Michigan who are getting in a room and explaining why they think like they think. Fourteen Christians. As it turns out, eight of them voted for Joe Biden, and five of them voted for Donald Trump, and one was a Canadian, so he couldn't vote. He was the lucky one. One member of the group said that he was avidly pro-life and couldn't possibly understand how any Christian could ever vote for a pro-choice candidate. For him, abortion was a deal killer. But another member of the group was the church's associate pastor. And after listening to the group for several weeks, she finally gathered up all the courage she could find to share publicly something she'd never spoken about in public before. She said that when she was 20, she got pregnant, she says, I was alone, I was single, I didn't have a plan, I thought my life was over. And then she went on to tell the group that she ended up carrying the child to term and gave him up for adoption. But she admitted she thought about it. And she said, you know, the group that was most helpful for me during this whole process was Planned Parenthood. They coached me through the entire thing. And so here's a group of people. One is avidly pro-life and another one who understands existentially, personally, physically, the nuances of that difficult topic. So 14 Christians, by the end of this entire process, not one single one of them had changed his mind. They ended the process exactly the same way they started it. But here were 14 human beings who saw each other as human beings, who sat in a room and talked across a table, speaking peace to each other. And if their particular version of the peace was unwanted, they just shook it off and tried again because they realized that they're responsible for the message, not the response. And they believe that cherished, sacred, Presbyterian conviction, people of good conscience, may differ.
My friend Steve McConnell is the senior minister at the Church of the Palms in Sarasota. And a couple of years ago in a sermon, he told his congregation this story. Steve and I grew up in Michigan in the 1970s. And Steve said that in in the congregation he grew up, there was a man who lost his son to the Vietnam War. His son died in the jungles of Vietnam. And of course, at the cemetery, the young man's coffin was draped with an American flag as it was lowered into the earth. And at the end, the honor guard ritualistically, beautifully, meticulously folds that flag into that shapely, symmetrical little triangle. And they hand the flag to Ed. His name was Ed, the father of this young hero. And Ed takes the triangle of a flag home and he puts it under glass and he hangs it on the wall of his living room. And he's so proud. Grief-stricken, but proud. A couple of years later, President Gerald Ford declares a partial pardon for all Americans who fled the country to escape the draft. This enrages Ed. Is that what you think of my son's sacrifice? You let these cowards go? Is that what you think? Is that how you value the death of my son? And so Ed packs up his flag and mails it to the White House with a little note. Week later, the White House calls Ed, invites him to sit down with President Ford. And so Ed goes, and he goes into a room, waits for the president, and the president walks in. He's got the flag under his arm, and the president sits down and tells Ed how troubled the president is to receive this flag from a young hero. And he says, I understand your pain and your sorrow and your trouble. I understand your anger. But just remember, I'm a father too. I'm also the commander-in-chief. And it's my task to heal the divisions that cleave us in two. And so, Ed, I hope you'll understand that showing grace to one son does not mean taking honor from from another. And I hope you'll take this flag back and put it up in your home where it belongs. And that's what Ed did. So I thought that was just a nice example of speaking peace. Just two men sitting in a room, probably for 10 minutes, citizen to citizen, veteran to veteran, father to father. Because that's who the people are that we disagree with. They're mothers and fathers, citizens, some of them veterans. And so we try not to do this alone, and we speak peace, and we shake it off. When the mission of the 70 is completed, and they come back to the Lord rejoicing in their success, Jesus shares their joy, and he says, I saw Satan fall like a flash of lightning from heaven. In other words, he says, because you are preaching the kingdom, because you are sharing the good news, the darkness is beginning to die. I saw the power of evil fall. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. Amen.